Hello and welcome to the podcast of tech.eu. I am your host, Andrew Degeler. In today's show, we will talk about some of the most interesting funding rounds of the week, also a couple of M&A deals and some policy news to finish it off. Later on, I will also play you an interview that I recorded earlier with Aline Moulart, uh, the co-founder of Citizen Lab. We will talk about civic engagement, urban decision-making, and try to figure out which countries are more likely to embrace digital government solutions. Before we get to the news, I wanted to highlight a couple of things. First, in case you haven't known Noticed, we seem to be in the middle of a huge growth spurt of the European tech. We have crunched some numbers from our database here at TechEU, and Robin just ran a piece the other day looking at how January 2021 looks like when compared to January 2020 and January 2019. The short answer is, it was ridiculously big. In fact, January 2021 set a record, an absolute record, not just in January's, in terms of the total amount of funding raised by European startups, and the number was almost 6.7 billion euros. And keep in mind that we are talking about a month where the first week is traditionally very quiet due to the holiday season. Also, January 2021 was twice as big as January 2019 in terms of money raised, and that is also something to note. Same goes for mergers and acquisitions. There has never been more deals done within one month than in January 2021. So I know numbers can be hard to digest in the podcast format, but you've got the main idea. The industry is growing like crazy, the numbers do not lie, and I'm so much looking forward to see what's going to happen in February. So check out was Robin's piece on TechEU. I will leave a link in the show notes. There is much more interesting stuff in there. And another thing I wanted to talk about really quickly is our weekly Clubhouse Hangout event. I hosted the first one on Tuesday, as I announced last week, and uh, it was exactly at the time when the app experienced big server issues, but nevertheless, I think it went great. Uh, we've had uh, some people listening. Uh, we had a great conversation with Sebastian Tupi, who uh, was in our podcast uh, later last year. And in case you missed it, the idea in general is to come together for more spontaneous and interactive conversations on our favorite topic of European tech. Every week, I will also try to bring someone whom we interviewed on the podcast before to follow up on things that we discussed uh, back then and take additional questions from all of you. So if you are on Clubhouse, mark 4.30 p.m. on Tuesday, CET, in your calendar and come to our Hangouts. You can also follow me at adegular and Robin at Robin Wouters and watch out for more announcements from us. And now let us finally take a glimpse at this week's news. Denmark-founded wine discovery startup Vivino has landed 155 million US dollars in a Series D funding round. TechCrunch reports that the app's user base has grown from 29 million in 2018 to 50 million users currently, including myself. In case you are not among those 50 million users, Vivino is an app that helps you choose wine if you are in a store or in a restaurant. All you need to do is to fire it up and take a picture of the bottle and next thing you will see is a star rating that's derived from reviews from other users in the app. And from my experience it actually tends to be quite accurate. So I haven't really been drinking alcohol for almost a year now myself, but Vivino also works for non-alcoholic wines, uh, though I have to say that I am yet to see uh, any non-alcoholic wine that has a rating higher than 3.5 out of 5. If you know one, do let me know, I really want to take a look. And 
and maybe even try it. So Vivino, in addition to helping in choosing, the app can also recommend you something new based on your taste. It also works as a marketplace, so you can often buy a bottle right from the app's interface. Next up, I'm honestly not sure if I should still talk about UiPath since it's long been headquartered in the US rather than in Europe, but I guess I will do it just for this once. So the Romanian founded unicorn has raised 750 million US dollars at a valuation of 35 billion dollars. Uh, the company is one of the pioneers of the robotic process automation industry, which has seen a whole lot of growth over the past few years. This is most likely to be the last private funding round for UiPath because last year in December it actually filed confidentially for an IPO. Now here is a couple of acquisition stories. Cloud content storage company Box, based in California, is buying Dutch startup SignRequest for 55 million US dollars. As follows from the name, SignRequest is a cloud-based electronic signature service. As my colleague Annie reported, and I quote here, the acquisition helps Box close the document lifecycle by keeping files and any required actions within its secure platform. Box will develop on top of SignRequest technology, building in the e-signature capability under the name Box Sign. As of this summer, Box Sign should be included in business and enterprise plans. So now, if you have been listening to this podcast long enough, you may remember an interview that we ran in June uh, last year with Antti Sominen from the Finnish fintech startup Holvi. So back then, Holvi was owned by the Spanish banking behemoth BBVA, and Sominen was the CEO of the company. Now, both of these things are changing. BBVA has just basically sold Holvi back to one of its co-founders for undisclosed amount. Technically, the buyer is called Keru Fintech Investments, which is an entity that was created by Tuomas Toivonen. He is also replacing Antti Suominen at the CEO position effective immediately. Next up, Moonpeak, the online greeting cards retailer that I mentioned recently, went public as it had planned, and so its shares rise by 25% within minutes after the trade opened. On the first day of trading, the company was valued at 1.2 billion pounds. Same story, but a bit later happened to Auto One, which has just gone public in Frankfurt. Uh, the shares opened at 55 euros a pop, and that's 45% above the initial price. Later in the day, Auto One shares drifted back to around 51 euros, which had valued Auto One at around 10.6 billion euros. So, you know, some time ago I said on this show that one of the differences between tech IPOs in Europe and in the US was that European listings rarely pop like this. Well, looks like this is changing. And if you've got an explanation why it is like this, talk to me on Twitter or send me an email at podcast at tech.eu. I would love to hear from you. And here comes another listing that's just been finally announced. Israeli fintech company Payoneer will go public on Nasdaq through a SPAC. And in case you've missed the whole madness, SPAC stands for a special purpose acquisition company, meaning an entity that's created and floated on a stock exchange with the sole purpose of merging with another organization, therefore taking it public while saving a lot of regulatory hurdles. So Payoneer is merging with a SPAC and it expects that after it starts trading on Nasdaq, the company would be valued at around 3.3 billion US dollars. 
Up next, policy news. The UK's Financial Conduct Authority, or the FCA, is looking to apply tougher regulations to the buy now, pay later services, ones like Klarna or Afterpay, also known as Clearpay. The agency has published a review in which it highlighted a lack of control and regulation in this part of the fintech industry. In particular, it is concerned with the lack of visibility between lenders, as well as the lack of awareness among customers that buy now, pay later is still in fact a form of credit. There is no time frame yet on when exactly new regulation will be introduced, but now we know that it will happen in the foreseeable future. Now, before we proceed, there is one more announcement that I wanted to make. On Wednesday, February 10, we will host the first virtual event in our new series that's called To The Point. This one is all about fintech. We will talk about the report that we have just published and also reveal some of the freshest numbers on the industry that were not included in it. There's even more. We've got a stellar lineup of speakers from the startup and the VC side of things. For now, I can confirm the following names. Uh, Verena Taylor from Raising, Antoine Nguay from Checkout.com, Anastasia Aleinika of Twino, Eileen Burbridge from Passion Capital, and Mike Lobanov uh, from Target Global. Oh, and did I mention that the event is completely free, because it is. So, February 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, CET time, join us to talk about the state of European fintech. Of course, I will leave a link in the show notes, so go ahead and register and I will see you there. Now, it is time for today's interview. Last week, I talked to Aline Moulart, uh, the co-founder of Citizen Lab. The topics that we discussed were about civic engagement, urban decision-making, and everything in between. So, let's check it out together. So my name is Aline. I'm one of the co-founders at CitizenApp. And at CitizenApp, we've developed a citizen engagement platform. So it's a software that connects governments and citizens, and it gives citizens a say in policymaking. So traditionally, as a citizen, if you had an idea, you went to the town hall to say what you think, or you went to a physical meeting. Now we are bringing that into the digital world so people can share ideas, answer questions, do participatory budgeting on the topics they, they care about. So we're building part of a digital democracy. And at Citizen Lab, I'm the head of government relations. So I'm responsible for the team that's in touch with our governments, our customers, and trying to make them successful with their uh, citizen engagement platform. Right. And what did you do before Citizen Lab? So we started, my co-founder Witsa and I, we started as student entrepreneurs. So we actually started the business while we were still studying at, at university. And it's actually there that we got the idea. Um, I had an idea for my neighborhoods. I wanted to make a specific square greener and safer and I wanted to reach out to my local government and I saw that it was, I had to use very traditional methods, going to a meeting, sending a letter. And I was like, okay, five years ago, we should have digital tools for that. And then we actually started talking to the cities and we saw that they were in need for such uh, solutions. So that's how we came up with the idea of, of Citizen App. And then we built the, or we worked on uh, Citizen Lab during the first year, we were both still still studying. So I just studied before I rolled into this. <laughs> right. So is the square uh, now in the shape that you want to see it in? 
Yeah, it's it's better. It's getting much safer. There are more um, bike lanes. It's greener. So things are things are changing, but slowly. I mean, governments move slowly, but we there there has been an impact for sure. Right. Is it is it in Brussels? It's in Brussels, indeed. I, I live uh, I live and work in Brussels. Right. So Brussels has uh, already uh, uh, is already using your solution. Is it? Yeah, so we today we work with more than 200 uh, local governments and in Brussels specifically <laughs> can sometimes be like kind of a maze of governmental layers because you have the local governments and then you have the region. And so we're mainly working with the region um, in, mm -hmm. in Brussels. So, yeah, we the Brussels government is, is one of our customers. Right. And uh, you so far have uh, raised some funding already. So how much have you raised and uh, what are you actually doing with the money? So we've had two big rounds. Uh, the first round was right after we graduated. Uh, so we kind of had to choose like, will we keep on doing this as a side project or will we go full on it? Um, and then we said, we'll try the second option. And we raised half a million from business angels. And that allowed us to I mean, rebuild the prototype we had built and start um, selling internationally. Um, and then the second round was one year and a half ago, mid-2019. And then we raised more than 2 million to further grow internationally. We were already active in, let's say, five European countries, but now we're active worldwide. So uh, we're active in South America, in North America, in even more European countries. So we're basically using it to internationalize, but of course to keep on innovating with our product because we have the front office, what citizens can see, how they can interact with the platform. But actually a lot of our added value is in the back office. We want to help mm -hmm. governments digitize their way of working, processing all that data, taking data-driven decision-making. And that's really where we invest in terms of research and development. Right. So there is you, there is your co-founder, and how many more people? How big is the company? Today we're 35 people. So we, right. um, we've we grown a lot, uh, especially in the past year. I think we almost doubled in size in 2020. Um, so 2020 was a, a really yeah, a high growth uh, year for, for us. Um, and the headquarters are in Brussels, but today we have people working from, I think, six different different countries. Um, so both in Europe, but also in South, North um, America. Um, and we're all working from home, so it doesn't really matter where you're based. Right. And how much a Citizen Lab solution costs so it depends. So we mainly sell to local governments and then it depends mm -hmm. on their size. So how many inhabitants they have will influence the budgets they have. So let's say they have around, it costs at least uh, or minimum 5,000 euros a year up to mm -hmm. 30,000 depending on their specific uh, specific needs. And it's a SaaS model. So we sell subscriptions with different mm -hmm. license packages. Right. And since you are active in so many different uh, countries and different continents right now, I wonder, is there any particular, let's say, country or any particular region that uh, that you have seen uh, to be the most receptive to this kind of uh, innovation? To whom was it the easiest to sell to? 
Yeah, I think that's a very good question because you basically have two things. You have on one hand, you have the culture, is citizen engagement embedded into the culture? And then you have digitization. Uh, are they using technology, um, etc.? And I think, I mean, you have many regions where citizen engagement is is really built into, into the culture or where democracy functions well already. Um, but I think especially in Northern Europe, they have it both into their way of working and they are open to new using new new technologies. So I'm thinking of the Netherlands, uh, Scandinavia. Of course, that's always like a lot of countries we look up to. But then we also see, for example, that in South America, we've had really good traction. For example, in Chile, uh, we've mm -hmm. worked on with all the social unrests on uh, the new constitution. So you really feel that there there's a real need for it. And now we're slowly entering in the States. And although as Europeans, we all look up to the States, we actually feel that in terms of citizen engagement, they're a bit behind Europe because it's it's much more governmental processes are, are much more traditional. They're less open to citizen engagement. Uh, so for us, it's a, it's a good thing that we as a European company can now enter there and that we have a bit of an advantage maybe because we're European. Right. This is really interesting. And uh, with so many countries, I kind of imagine that there would uh, need to be a whole lot of localization uh, done in terms of uh, uh, languages and uh, that kind of thing. How did you how did you approach this? Yes, it's true. On one hand, there's, of course, always some localization to do in terms of languages or in terms of features that are relevant to them. But then on the other hand, we also clearly decided strategically a few years ago that we wanted to focus on a niche, which is local governments, because many people told us like this kind of engagement platform can work for private companies or national governments. So because we focused that much on one niche, it actually made a lot of sense for different countries uh, because mm -hmm. local governments in the States versus Belgium, they're not working in a totally different, different way. So the localization is actually kind of okay, but it also has to do a lot with, of course, the, how would you say that? Like the, the level of development of the country in some countries, citizens don't have access, I mean, to internet that much. So for example, in South America, we do need to think a lot, like how can we use uh, SMS? Uh, so it's, it's, of course, it's, um, there is some localization to do, but I think focusing on a niche really helped us to build a product that works for different countries and, and continents. Right, right. And how many languages are you available in at the moment? I think we have, today we have 15 languages and the most right. difficult one was Arabic because, um, I mean, everything is in the other direction, but in terms of software development, that changes so much because all your buttons, I mean, everything changes, but uh, we, we did it. And uh, so we're now having our first projects in the Middle East, which is really exciting as well. It's very impressive. But yeah, sounds like a nightmare for a front-end developer. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, no, 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 always postponing that decision. And then we said, yeah, we just need to do it. And then uh, we, we did it. Right. And uh, also speaking of local governments, uh, do you think there is like a sweet spot in terms of the size of the city or a town or uh, this uh, region uh, for a citizen lab to be the most efficient? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, we we actually split up governments in size, so we have small, medium, large. And I think for us as a company, the most interesting range is the medium segment, which is let's say fifty to one hundred thousand inhabitants, because the city already has a size. I mean, they have re- internal resources, they have departments that can invest in IT and communication, etc. But they're not the biggest cities neither, which, I mean, if we work with big cities, but they want to tailor everything. So that mid-sized segment has the right size, they can get the value out of the product we're building and the back office, but they don't want to customize everything. So that's, I think, our, our sweet, sweet spots. Yeah, sounds about right. And what, uh, just out of curiosity, what is the biggest city that you're active in? Is it Vancouver, I guess, or? Um, I think the biggest city today would be um, the city of Seattle in in the states. Um, I think that's the biggest city we're uh, we're working with, and we're preparing a really exciting project there um, on participatory budgeting. So that's a hot topic, not only in the States, but also in Europe. How can you help uh, or how can you allow citizens to decide on what budgets uh, should be spent? Um, So, of course, these bigger cities, they have specific needs, but their projects are also really exciting to work on. Right. Okay, so let us address the current situation uh, in the world, which you have been uh, also working in. So... I, as like a, someone who lives in a city, can certainly see that uh, my city, as well as the other cities around us, uh, have changed a lot over the year because uh, of uh, pandemic and uh, all the measures that have been taken by the governments. How do all these changes look from your perspective, from the perspective of uh, Citizen Lab? Yeah, I think, first of all, the pandemic, I mean, we are all of a sudden all living even more in this digital world. So also for governments, there was an extreme need and push for digitization. So when um, the first lockdown hit us in March and April, we got, we were called constantly (laughs) because before, I mean, we, of course, we believe in the combination of offline and online citizen engagement, but now we could only do online citizen engagement. So our customer portfolio grew a lot because digitization was was that important. Uh, But then, so there's that aspect of digitization and and technology becoming so central in in how we're working. But then I think there's, of course, also the, the, the context of rethinking democracy and democratic processes um, in the States, I mean, with Black Lives Matter and also in Europe, uh, there was a lot of thinking about um, equity in our societies. um, And we see that that also sparks a lot of conversations on how should we organize our local democracy? How do we want people to voice their opinions, to say what matters to them? So for us, it's been a great push and an acceleration on both these these fronts. So it's been a very, very busy year, but we cannot complain at all because we feel that it's a really interesting time to, to work in this space of, of, on one hand, GovTech, but also on, yeah, rethinking democracy, if we can put it that big. <laughs> right. So so you did see certain change in the scope of the projects that you're doing with regions. What sort of change do you think? 
I mean, we're still doing so on, so it's one platform where the government is discussing different topics. So it can be very mm -hmm. specific mobility, greenery, but we also see that more and more um, governments dare to discuss more sensitive topics. So for example, in Greenland, we discussed if a statue of a certain conqueror could stay or not in the States. We're discussing how, I mean, we're discussing topic, topics such as police defunding. So you kind of feel that governments realize they need to also discuss these, these very sensitive topics with their, with their citizens and that it cannot just stay like the, the nice topics. Greenland. Yeah, yeah, we work with, uh, yeah, with Greenland. You know, pandemic aside, if I were living in Greenland, I would probably really want to use digital solutions because I wouldn't want to go to a town hall with like minus 30, minus 50 degrees Celsius exactly, temperature. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I wouldn't believe that you are the only platform that is doing something like this. Uh, what sort of a competition landscape are you working in? What's it like? Yeah, I think... Of course, we we were now active in in more than ten, let's say more even more than fifteen countries. So depending on the country, we always have very local competitors, and I think we've been we've become one of the European market leaders on on citizen engagement software because we invested that much in the back office. And so we're investing also in artificial intelligence and how to process all that data. And that's something many of our competitors don't have. So we see that today when we start competing with, um, um, of course, our competitors, but um, there, there were no, let's say, very big incumbents, very big companies. There were more like companies like ours, maybe starting a bit before us. So now we're rather competing with international international um, companies and it's basically trying to 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 grab that market share and and convince these local governments of of working with us but we see that there's still a lot of room to grow because not all local governments are, are using such a software yet so it's it's basically time to market that is that is really key uh, while keeping um, investing in 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 the innovation um, of your of your I mean the innovativeness of your software. So if you're talking to local governments that are not using your solution yet, what is the main reason? What do you normally see? I think it's one just maybe sometimes being scared of starting something new. I mean, the public sector is not really known to be the most innovative or open open to change. So it really depends on the civil servant you're meeting. And they can sometimes say, like, we've been doing this forever, like this, why why not, why, why changing? So I think it's that resistance to change. And then also more and more, but that's a question for both online and offline is how can we be as inclusive as possible with online tools? You can reach many more people. We see that we're reaching younger people, other people, but there's still the, the same question as how do we keep it accessible for minorities? Um, and, but that's, I mean, a question every government has, I think if they're not using it yet, it's mostly, uh, yeah, resistance to change and maybe fear of collecting a lot of negative inputs, which they see happening on their social media. And we see, I mean, with our platform, people need to register that it's much more construct constructive debate compared to 
social media where it can be so negative. Well, I would expect that still, even uh, even with the need to register, there would be a whole lot of uh, crap that the government uh, would receive from their citizens. Yeah, actually, it's not. I mean, that's one of the fears they all have. But we have a lot of spam filters and um, people need to register. It's also an official platform. It's not on Facebook. It's not on whatever other platform. So people really feel like, okay, this is something official if I share something uh, it will be taken into account because, of course, that's also one of the, the goals that it's not just sharing your input, but getting feedback. And because citizens see that the government is doing something with it, their attitude is also more constructive. Right. So what uh, what do you think is the future like uh, for uh, Citizen Lab, for other similar platforms, for the sector in general? Uh, what uh, What is it that you're looking for? What sort of milestones are you planning to achieve within the next, I don't know, five years or something? I think as a company, we always split up our goals and objectives in, on one hand, impact and then financial growth of the company. Uh, so we really see ourselves as a social enterprise. So when we look at 21 or further, I mean, 22, 23, it's really about how many cities can we reach and how many citizens can we engage online? How many millions of people can we get on our platform and uh, make their, their voice, voice heard? And also taking all that input into account. So we have on impact, we have a theory of change that really says like, how is this platform changing the way governments uh, operate? Um, and then for ourselves on, on financial growth and just growth of the company, it's further growing um, in these new continents, especially in the States. I mean, the States is a continent by itself. Uh, so that will be really interesting. We now have our first five references there, but we uh, are hiring a local team. And so that will be taking off. It's already taking off, but accelerating. Um, and then even entering other regions uh, through through resellers. And then I think as if we look at this, the space of digital democracy and GovTech, I think a real question or, or an important trend will be how do we use artificial intelligence in a very good and responsible way for decision-making. Uh, we're collecting a lot of data. Citizens need to know what is happening with their data, but governments also need to become much more efficient in processing that data. But we need to make sure that those algorithms um, yeah, are, are built in, in a responsible, transparent, transparent way. So you really feel that within the GovTech space, responsible AI is, is a really big, big topic. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, this really makes a lot of sense. And uh, just again, out of curiosity, I noticed that you mentioned uh, all the continents. But you haven't mentioned Asia yet. Are you looking at it at all, or do you think that uh, the cities there are too big uh, for a citizen lab? I think what is really key for us is some kind of maturity in citizen engagement and the way. I mean, I mean, open to to let's say, a liberal form of, of democracy. And in, in many countries in, in, in Asia, that's still, that's still a challenge. Um, so it's not that we're not interested in these topics uh, or in these countries, um, but it's rather out of 
let's say cultural closeness or something or or the way i mean our product is is built that it works best for liberal democracies and that we also really want to make a make a, a difference and i'm sure that in the future we might also work in asia but that will indeed come with also more localizations for the software as you said so in the beginning america then seemed easier to uh to relate to and and so in the future but not in the near future right Aline, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for this conversation. It's been very interesting, very insightful. Uh, so good luck with Citizen Lab and good luck with all the change that you're making. Thank you, Andri. And this is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, do subscribe today whenever you listen to your podcasts. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are very welcome. As usual, send them to podcast at tech.eu. Also, there is always our voicemail inbox at tech.eu slash voicemail. Head over there, speak your mind, and get featured on one of our next episodes. tech.eu slash voicemail. We are always very, very happy to hear your voices. This was TechEU Podcast. I am Andrew Degler, and I will talk to you again next week. For now, take care and enjoy the weekend. Bye-bye.